Hello, my name's John Busby. I play in a band called Halfway. Been based out of Brisbane since the year 2000. In that time, we've been making records and touring around Australia and occasionally overseas. And to celebrate our 20th anniversary, we've put together a podcast just to outline the work we've done, while we've done it and how we've done it. And at this point, I'm in Darwin in the Northern Territory, looking out over the harbour. And I've just spent the last few weeks in Brisbane rehearsing with the band. We have a show coming up in September. We're just fine-tuning things there and working on some new stuff. So yeah, I'm back in Darwin for a couple of weeks. And hopefully, depending on the border closures, I will be able to get back to Queensland soon to play some shows. It's a bit of a weird world, but it's it's the world we have at the moment with COVID. And while I'm up here, I'll try and uh, do a couple of episodes of the podcast and finish off the run through the albums with uh, a look at our most recent record, our sixth album, Rain Lover. So usually the format is that I chat to some people who helped us make the record. But for this episode, I'm just going to run through it myself. Similar to what I did on the first episode of the podcast. And in next week's episode, I'll talk to Brisbane engineer Yanto Browning. He's the guy who recorded Rain Lover for us. He's a great engineer and he's done everything from Kate Miller-Hydke to the medics to working with Magoo. And we'll get his insight into the process and how it unfolded. Now, in some ways, with Rain Lover, we covered some similar themes to things we'd looked at before in previous albums. But the process itself was very different. The first point of difference was that it was done in a pretty low-key way. Um, The sessions themselves were just the band and an engineer. No extra players or producers or, or even people around, really. It was just us, a closed shop. Now, I don't remember going in with a plan to do that, but it really suited the mood. From memory, the only people who dropped by the session were Tim Burns, who's a good friend of ours, from Newcastle, and a long-time associate of the band, Bobby Weatherall. And speaking of Bobby, this is the other part of the recording that was unusual. The Rain Lover sessions were actually a continuation of another recording session, which was a collaboration between Halfway, Bobby Weatherall, and legendary Didge player, William Barton. Now, the project isn't out yet, but hopefully it will be soon. We had a release plan for it this year, but due to COVID, we've had to uh, postpone. But fingers crossed, we can release it next year and tour it. Now, the details of the project are probably mostly for another podcast. But basically, Bobby Weatherall is a Camilla Roy elder, and this project documents his 30 years of work in Indigenous repatriation, uh, the reclaiming of bones and artifacts from museums and galleries all around the world. Now, Bobby has just always been a friend of the band and has hung out with us at rehearsal a lot. And I guess in one way or another, his stories just permeated the band and what we were working on. And the stories reminded me of the Joda Man, the great song by the Triffids from uh, their album, Callancher, which tells the story of an indigenous Australian warrior's bones, which are left discarded and cold in the British Museum, waiting to be rescued. It's an incredible story and a beautiful record. And Bobby's story is along similar lines, but from a first-hand point of view, detailing this long period of his life, fighting for the cause. Yeah, we thought it was an amazing story and it needed to be told. Essentially, our job in it is just to play a supporting role, support the narrative, 
add melody and instrumentation. Really just to add to Bobby's powerful spoken word and song and stay out of the way. I think it's a nice thing. I'm happy with it. We've been working on it on and off for about five years. And it's something we're very proud of. And hopefully soon it'll get a release. So basically we went in to record Restless Dream. It went well. It went really smoothly. Uh, John Willsteed teed up the session at QUT at Kelvin Grove. And he'd booked Yanto Browning as engineer. We'd never worked with Yanto before, but he made that session very easy. So we were on a roll. We made one record easily, and I had a bunch of songs up my sleeve. So we decided to book some more sessions with Yanto, just to see how they'd go. It was no definite, let's make an album thing. They could have been demos for all we knew. But we had the songs, the room was there, and we were ready, we were well rehearsed. Yeah, that's how it happened. We just tacked one session onto the next. Two albums at once, and sometimes in overdubs. Yeah, the two sessions overlapped completely. They were definitely different projects, but uh, there were similarities because they were done in the same session with the same people. And in a way, the Restless Dream sessions are a bit of a progression from the Golden Halfway record to uh, Rain Lover. It does sound like a step from one to the other. And it makes sense because that's really the order they were recorded in and uh, you know the, the order the songs were written in. And hopefully, I'll go through that in more detail in another podcast sometime, once it's released. But for now, I'll get back to Rain Lover. I just thought I should mention the Restless Dream stuff, just to put everything into perspective. Okay, so after we got back from the States in 2015... Just as 2016 rolled around, my father became ill in what was kind of the start of a brief but pretty wild battle with cancer, throat cancer. He'd been a pretty unrepentant uh, smoker his whole life. Actually, unrepentance is a pretty good description for him. And since he was based in Rockhampton, this meant that he'd have to make a lot of trips down to Brisbane to get proper care and uh, see specialists and that kind of thing. So. In a way, it brought us uh, closer together. And our relationship had been a real off-again, on-again type of situation. He was a pretty unconventional person, and uh, he had his battles with addiction and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, we went through this one together. It was a tough time. And in the end, we lost. He passed away in 2016. As a result, a lot of the songs on this record, Rain Lover, are based around his life. John Joseph James Busby. But I wanted it to be more than a eulogy. You know, just looking back to the past. Glory days and that sort of thing. I wanted some of it to cover more recent times. You know, time we'd spent together. Because even though he was physically breaking down, the courage he had and the fearlessness he had when he was a jockey, even when he was older and frail, it was still there. And also I felt like I, uh, I owed him after any old love. I mean, no one likes to have a story written about them, about being a wrecking ball in bars. So I was balancing the books in a way and documenting his story in another. His passing was a blow, as you'd expect. 
So I wrote a bunch of songs for and about him as a document, I guess. Even the title, Rain Lover, I mean, the term could sound like someone who is a contrarian or someone who's quite different, which kind of does explain him in a way. But Rain Lover was just a horse that won the Melbourne Cup in 1968 and 1969, which was about the same time as my dad was riding, and I was just trying to send him out with a win. And back onto the tracking of the record. Like I said, it was, it was all kind of done in a are we making a record kind of way where uh, we were just recording, not knowing if we were doing one song or 12. And also at the same time as we were recording, the Fitzpatrick brothers' dad, Willie, became very ill, uh, also with cancer. And sadly, he passed away soon after, before the record came out. And it was a tough time for the band, who were like a family. And I know that sounds like some kind of spinal tap throwaway rock and roll thing, but uh, it's true. And yeah, they'd really been through the ringer. And I guess all of these outside things influenced the record itself, in a way. But I'm really happy with it. I know I say that about every record, but uh, this thing came out how we wanted it to be. So yeah, I guess the record, the themes were, it was a send-off to my dad and a love letter to my home, uh, to his home, Rockhampton. And in the end, it was also dedicated to Willie Fitzpatrick, the Fitzy's dad who brought his family out from Ireland all those years ago. He was a good man, and he's missed. So yeah, their sessions were recorded at Skyline, which is a great studio that looks over the city of Brisbane. You can watch the storms roll in. And the sessions were a bit of a lockout. They were quiet and reserved, which was a bit different to the last couple of records we'd made. It was one of those things where we started, we did one or two songs, they, they took no time, and then we just went, okay, we've got 10 songs. Let's just do it, let's just make the record. It was all tracked live, there was very little overdubbing. Lots and lots of guitar pedals, we'd gotten into guitar pedals since Any Old Love came out in 2014. We got into a lot more electric guitar stuff. And we were digging deep into that world, into guitar pedals and ambient guitar sounds swells that kind of thing and production wise we were focusing pretty hard on that kind of world as well Eno, Daniel Lenoir we talked about it for a long time but we'd never really tried to do it and we even took in a set of uh, Brian Eno's oblique strategies cards to uh, help us through the day and just to add something different to the sessions if you're not familiar with the oblique strategies cards basically they're just a deck of cards and each card has a message on it a little phrase and they're designed to give direction or even just some relief from the studio grind and it's by no means a new idea I think the first edition came out in 1975 so people have been using them ever since it was just new to us or me at least and we'd had them in the rehearsal room for a while we like them let's have a look I'll look at a card now we'll see what it says okay what wouldn't you do that kind of thing you know. here's another one Repetition is a form of change, or courage, exclamation mark. Let's try another. Ask people to work against their better judgment. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, it probably doesn't make for stellar radio, but you get the idea. It's a bit like playing a board game as you're recording, or a rock and roll fortune cookie. And whenever we felt like we needed a bit of a break in the studio, we just pick up a card 
and see if we can get some direction from. More than anything, they're good just to talk about something briefly other than uh, what's in front of you. And I think the other thing we did when we were talking about these songs and the way that we wanted them to work, because we were going to put a lot more uh, guitars or thicker, denser guitars on, that meant that the rhythm section, the bass and the drums had to really lock the whole thing down. More than ever. I mean, the rhythm section always locks a song down, but this was a change in tack. More so than ever when you have ambient, dense guitars, you need the song to be really driven by the rhythm section. So we focused a lot on that. And it did change the shape of some of the songs and the way we attacked them. And the whole record, really. I think it's better for it. And once the songs were tracked, we sent them to the States to be mixed by our friend Mark Nevers, who we work with on the Golden Halfway record. He mixed it at his new studio in South Carolina, the Beach House, and mixing a record like this is not easy. It's so dense, there's so much going on, but uh, yeah, he did a fantastic job. Uh, yeah, it's beautifully done. He went above and beyond to get it right. So that was the basic plan. It was pretty organic. One record led into the other. Restless Dream into Rain Lover. And in a way, it was the lack of a plan that kind of led to Rain Lover being made. It just kind of unfolded. So next up, I'll start going through some of the songs. And I'll start with the song that we basically built the album around, Swinburne Ashes. Once we had that song, I knew we were going to build the record around it, and so did the band. It was there. You could hear it. It was pretty obvious. And the themes from it spread off like branches into all the other songs. Just, uh, yeah. It just took control of the record, really. So I'll start by mapping what it's about or what we think it's about and, uh, and then play it, and then we'll go through the other songs after that. So I can remember pretty clearly that I had the verse pattern and the melody for Swinburne uh, early in the piece, and we were going through it at uh, the Bird's Place halfway house we had in Pickering Street. And Chris Dale and I were playing around with the song, trying to work out where it was handed. I was finding it a hard song to write a chorus for, but Chris came up with the idea to hold on the last chord of the verse and roll that into the chorus. And from there we worked out the chorus melody. So yeah, it was a rehearsal room song. Chris Dale sorted the chorus, and we went from there, and then I added the coda. It's kind of inspired by scenic pastures by Arches of Life. Maybe not so much the tune itself or the shape, it was more just the idea. We just always loved that song, and how it has the big tag at the end, and uh, like a whole new song added to the back of it. It's fantastic. It's a cool way to finish a song. We'd always wanted to try something like that before, but we'd never really gone that far with it. And then we just let the guitar pedals do the heavy lifting and get wild and loose in the outro. And just feel our way through in the dark. It was a pretty nice way to end it. And like with a lot of our records, the rhythm section are really integral to the whole thing, like I just said, but I can't really stress enough just how important Ben and Elwin are to this record. Particularly to this song. It just uh, holds the whole thing together. And yeah, and then the rest of the band just kick in as they do on uh, on the rest of the record. Will Steedad's melody, 
The bird does synthy washes, which really help glue all the bits together. Noel adds lots of great lines and drama with the pedal steel. Liam Fitz does that melodic, rolling, pulsing thing that he does. It's also quite percussive. It's, yeah, quite unique. Chris Dale does the counterpoint rhythm, which is great. And he handles a lot of the ambient washes and soundscapes in the intro and in the coda. And across the scope of the record, he plays a lot of the key guitar lines. Shared by him and John Wilstein, obviously. So overall, I guess, everyone's jobs were pretty much the same on Rain Lover, but just slightly tweaked. Some more than others, but there were slight changes to the roles. And to the story itself, where it actually came from, Swinburne Street is a street not far from our rehearsal room in Lutwich. It was a little shortcut I used to take when I'd pick my dad up from the airport for treatment. We'd go through Swinburne Street on the way to my place, and he'd stop there for a smoke. It wasn't a long drive, but he didn't like airports much, and uh, it was a good chance to have a chat, have a break. And the fact that he was still based in Rockhampton and I was in Brisbane meant that we did the trip a lot, over and over, so that he could get proper treatment. And it meant that we got to spend a fair bit of time together, which he really hadn't done previously. So we'd have a quick break, go to mine, and then uh, go and see what the doctors had to say. And we'd talk about uh, the things that pop up in the album. The traffic, the city, Brisbane and Rockhampton. How they've changed. Eagle Farm, Hendra, Lutwich and Albion. We'd compare the cities and uh, talk about the hospitals and the airports and all the stuff that was on the horizon. Yeah, in an odd way, it was a pretty good time. And yeah, the record is a send-off for him. When we first saw the specialists and uh, staff up at the Royal Brisbane, they gave us some odds so we could decide whether to push on with treatment or forget about it. Because sometimes the treatment can be even more brutal or as brutal as the disease. Particularly if you're compromised like he was. He was in poor health. And we knew about odds. Particularly Dan. He's a betting person. He's always been around the track. He was a bookmaker for a while. We were told his survival rate was 70-30, 70 win, 30 loss. And we thought, well, that's a pretty short price thing for a win. We know what 70-30 odds are. You have to be pretty unlucky to get rolling those odds. But due to the hard life he lived, uh, his body wasn't up for the treatment. It couldn't handle it and uh, it landed him in the 30. So yeah, we took the 70-30 odds and we lost. As the coda says in Swinburne Ashes, may your dreams lie closer to the shore. He definitely uh, dreamt big when it came to racing and uh, he got very, very close. It was really just a bit of bad luck that cost him in the end. But the more I think about it, the more I think maybe he wasn't quite cut out for it. I'm not sure he was mean enough for it. He was tough, sure. But I just don't think he was cold-blooded enough to be that person. To get ahead in racing, to be elite, you've got to have a mean streak. And I'm not sure he had enough of that in him. He had a code. Competitive streak, sure. But he was never trying to hurt anybody. I think that might have cost him. Okay, so let's play it. This is the first song from Rain Lover, our 2018 album. Swinburne Ashes. Thank you. 
Okay, so that was Swinburne Ashes, the first single from our sixth album, Rain Lover. And yeah, we basically built the album around that song. Once we had the base of it down, we used those themes and the sound of it as a center point for the rest of the record. So yeah, that's it, track one. And uh, as for other songs, uh, the next track is The Old House, which is a song I wrote about my grandparents' house on the north side of Rocky, just off Musgrave Street. 34 Armstrong Street, and where we use that as a line in the outro. It was the house where my mum's family would all get together and have their family Christmases and, you know, events. And, uh, yeah, I went back and saw it years later. It was it was in Rakaruan, and there's a certain amount of guilt or something you feel when uh, you see a place that used to mean so much to you falling apart, or the fact that people don't care about it, and uh, there's not much you can do about it. And I guess it's that realisation that it's not the place that's special, it's the memory. And yeah, going back there 10 or 15 years later, um, yeah, there was a sadness about it and uh, it was still there, but uh, the place it was had gone. And not long after I'd written the song, I went back home to see family and uh, the house had been renovated. And uh, strangely, it, uh, I was bored by that. It made me feel better. <laughs> that someone cared about it. I mean, it's just an old fibre light house. It was just the love that was in it that was special. So in a way, it's a bit of a nostalgic song. And speaking of nostalgic songs, the next one is Crescent Lagoon, which is named after a suburb in West Rockhampton, where a lot of my family are from. My dad loved it there. He learned to ride a horse there. And he loved uh, that whole lagoon area in West Rockhampton. And if you ever fly into Rockhampton, you can usually see the lagoons on your way in. They're just near the airport. And again, I uh, came in with the idea of this song and I finished it with Chris Dale. He was the perfect person to do it, really. He knew my dad and he knew the area. Yeah, he did a great vocal on it as well. And it wasn't done in an organised way. I just had the song and the general idea and I knew Chris understood it. So he finished some of the lyrics and sang it and we went from there. It was easy. Similar to the way we always work with the band. It's not really sitting around and sharing ideas. Everyone in the band knows their job, and 99% of the time, they know if they can add to it or not. Hey, I can help, or I don't have a part for this. And speaking of parts, John Willsteed plays that great floating, spacey guitar in the intro. I remember when I first heard it in some of the early mixes, it just lifted it so much. It's brilliant. Next up is Migratory Bird. It's about uh, restlessness. People who chop and change and are sort of restless the whole time, always moving around, like my dad. And I always see Migratory Bird and Asphalt Rain as kind of a pair for some reason. There's a similar feel and there's something similar about the lyric or the story. I'd had Migratory Bird, the general idea for it and the melody lying around for a long time, maybe five or six years, maybe more. And then when I wrote Asphalt Rain, I sort of realised that they were like bookends or uh, related in some way. And Chris Dale helped me finish Migratory Bird. He'd uh, helped me with the structure and the shape of it, which was great because it had been around a long time. And uh, John Wilsteed wrote the intro and outro for Asphalt Rain, that nice kind of sweeping, swirling intro that sets the whole thing up. And my dad actually worked for Borrell for a long time on roads and asphalt, so that's where that tie-in comes from. And speaking of the overlapping themes of these two songs, Asphalt Rain also has a 
a background of restlessness to it. There's even the line, Tigers They Run, which is a scream feeder lyric I borrowed from Tim Stewart. He's a great songwriter from Brisbane. We even have a little bit of audio at the end of the song of a tiger. Sounds a bit like a motorbike, but it's a tiger. We were overdubbing with the bird, Luke Peacock, and uh, he found an internet tiger for us and ripped it down and added it to the song. It was one of those, it's such a bad idea, it's a good idea kind of things. And then there's City Break, which I wrote with Chris Dale. Again, I brought it in, and there was a fair bit to be done on it, really, uh, lyrically in particular. And, uh, yeah, Chris finished it off. He got it. The song's about Rockhampton and Brisbane uh, at the same time, like a comparison. To me, it feels like driving around Brisbane after you've been in Rockhampton for a long time or a small town for a long time. The change of pace in a city of, say, 60,000 to a few million. I know Brisbane's not exactly New York, and a lot of people say it's a big country town, but, uh... I honestly think those people haven't been to a country town in a fair while. And again, Chris Dale does the vocal and, yeah, just brains it. He's a great singer. And my dad was making that trip from Rockhampton to Brisbane a lot. So uh, he was noticing the difference. And we did a lot of driving in the northern suburbs of Brisbane. So that's basically what that's about. The movement and the shape and the energy of the city. The bright lights. The duality, I guess. The hope and the disappointment of the city. And even as far back as on the first record, Farewell to the Fainthearted, we'd been doing similar little comparisons between Brisbane and Rockhampton. Like the song Six Hours from Brisbane, that idea of getting out of your town and seeing what's in the bright lights. And the first song on side two is Two and a Half Percent of a Dream. It's another co-write. Uh, ben Johnson wrote it with me. It's an important song on the record. Uh, once we had this one in Swinburne, we knew we had an album. And it started in the rehearsal room as a jam, so we worked on it together at the same time, which is unusual for us. And the title again comes from racing. In the later part of my dad's life, we were halves in a racehorse. Well, we were half of 5% of a racehorse, so we each owned 2.5% of a dream. And it was a little bay cult called Tax Exemption, and it ran out of the Gold Coast originally, and then Sunshine Coast and Newcastle. And we were just part of a syndicate. We didn't have much say in what was really happening with it. But it was a great way for us to reconnect and have a common interest, I guess, after we hadn't seen each other for a long time. In the end, though, the horse was basically sold out from under us. You don't have much say if you've only got 5% of a horse. It's not much of a share. So yeah, it ended as things almost always end in racing. But I look back on the time fondly. It's great. And it was great to write the song with Benny. It's an important song for us. And the second last song is Night of Light. The song title comes from a song on a church album called Heyday, which was released in 1986, around the same time as the story in the song. And it's based around a story of a fight in a pub at the Lineley Hotel between locals and showies. The showgrounds are just across the road from the Lion Lee in Wandle. And there are always stories of these notorious clashes after the show finished. And the characters mentioned in the song are all friends of my dad's. I saw a couple of them at the wake and I thought it'd be good to use one of his stories as a song and feature his friends in it. And I put them all in the sleeve art as well. Ted, Ralph, Sandfly, Huey, Georgie, Mick Moles, they're all there. It's a great combination of just guys in bars and uh, 
SP bookmakers and yeah dinosaurs it's a time it's gone the artwork also mentions the hotels the Lion Lee the Central the Red Lion all the places he loved yeah Night of Light covers a lot of the characters and the detail the people he loved the places he loved some of the other songs on the record it's not completely clear what they're about but this one's pretty straightforward I think uh, yeah I didn't want the whole record to be too impressionistic or unclear I wanted at least one song with plenty of detail and characters real people in real places to one flesh out the narrative a bit and also to give the album some variety not as detailed as say our earlier record any old love but I still wanted it to be there if the listener decided to look for it and if they don't that's okay we just put it there like the etchings in the runoff grooves it's there if you want to see it and uh, if no one sees it that's okay it's a message in a bottle it's okay it's okay so that leads us to the final song on Rain Lover the metallic taste of bad news which I'm going to play soon and as far as I can see it's pretty self-explanatory it's about the feeling you get when you receive a phone call and it's bad news and the moment you put that phone down uh, from there on in the whole world is different you'll never be the same everything is new and not always new for the better unfortunately i've had a couple of those in my life i'm sure everybody has and that's pretty much what the song's about that feeling the metallic taste i guess it's shock and when we recorded it i can remember we tried it a whole bunch of different ways uh, we had drums in it originally and bits and pieces and then we ended up pulling those out and we found it was just more interesting when it wasn't anchored to a time signature we wanted it to be esoteric and to float a bit like dizziness or when you have a rush of blood to the head and you're not thinking straight we wanted it to feel like that and really from a songwriting point of view it's a pretty basic song it's just the nature of it is, is that it's just all based on feel and understanding what it's about and I'll just say if you write songs and you hand a song like this to the people who are going to play it or your band or whoever and they can do this to a song it feels good they hand someone three chords and go hey can you make this feel like disappointment make this feel like uncertainty those things are hard to quantify that stuff takes more than just oh you know it's in g here comes the middle eight you know what i mean it's about translating an idea into something real something physical and really i didn't have to go into any great detail to describe what i wanted from this it's just like make it float make it sound like loss and bang there it is it's done. I knew exactly what it was just on the title. I hardly needed anything else. Amazing. It was just effortless. Like they'd prepared one earlier. Okay, so here it is. Uh, the last song on Rain Lover. The metallic taste of bad news.
Okay, so that was the metallic taste of Bad News, the last song on Rain Lover, our sixth album. And that song always reminds me of Mount Nebo. I was up there working in a studio called Junk Ship, helping some friends of ours make a record, playing a band called Leichhardt, and that was when I got the call. You don't think about those things at the time, but uh, it's good to be around friends when uh, when stuff like that happens. Um, and it's been galvanized in my memory. I always think of Mount Nebo when I hear it. So I guess that kind of covers uh, where the songs came from and what they're about and uh, why we did them. Uh, it was a send-off of sorts. And there was a bit of a general change in direction with the overall sound. I guess we were just looking for different ways to translate the songs. And that's really the key to any of these kind of things. Is you write a song give it to good people and they make it better that's where the fun is that's where the beauty is so yeah as for the recording itself it was recorded by yanto browning at skyline studios qut and it was mixed by mark nevers who also did the golden halfway record with us and he mixed it at the new beach house studio which he moved from nashville to paulie's island south carolina he also played space guitar on the record mark really just understood rain lover right from the get-go and the mastering was done by Justin Perkins at the Mystery Room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As for the artwork, I drew the cover in Illustrator. And it's a series of vector shapes, which ended up an abstract kind of picture of rain. There was no real plan to make it a picture of rain from the start. It was just a blank page that ended up that way, which I thought suited it. It was a bit of a step away from the type of cover we'd used before. And the inner sleeve art has a photo, a winner's post negative of my dad writing in the late 60s. And the other main piece of art is an old map of West Rockhampton. I found the map itself online and it was pretty blurry and busted up. So I uh, just essentially digitized the map. I brought it into Illustrator, blew it up and traced the lines, tidied it all up and hand drew in all the names of the streets and the places. And the best thing about that particular map was that it showed clearly Crescent Lagoon on it, which doesn't seem to get represented uh, in a lot of the old maps of Rockhampton, but this one was loud and clear, so it was perfect. There's quite a bit of detail on that map. There's even a Busby Street from when my family used to live there in the 30s and 40s. And the handwriting that's all over the records art is uh, my dad's hand. He, uh, had some papers lying around, and I digitized them, traced a couple hundred letters, made a bunch of different alphabets so that none of the letters would repeat and look like a font. I used them for the credits, the track listing, and the cover art as well. And the final bit of sleeve art are the rehearsal room picks, which were taken by Luke Henry. And finally, the runoff groove messages on the vinyl. Side one's etching is Panvale, and side two is Redshaw. 
and they were both good horses that my dad rode in the 60s. Now Panvale was a particularly smart horse. It even won the Queen Elizabeth Stakes in 1970. My dad had a couple of rides on it and actually rode it to a win a fortnight before the Queen Elizabeth Stakes to get the nomination for the race. But when they took the horse south to Royal Randwick in Sydney, for one reason or another, they decided to use a local jockey. And they put on another young rider called Peter Cook. Now Peter won the race that weekend at 100 to 1, and he actually met the Queen. Believe it or not, she was in the country for it. The win launched Peter Cook's career, and he went on to win a couple of Melbourne Cups. He even rode the great Kingston town to a Cox Plate win in 1982. So Peter never looked back, and my old man never really recovered. That's how it is sometimes. There's not a lot you can do about it. There's no good guy, bad guy, or deserve in it. Things just unfold. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it. That covers most of the how and why as to the making of Rain Lover. And in the next episode, I'll talk to Yanto Browning about engineering and recording the record and what it was like behind the desk. But until then, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Band Called Halfway. Take care.